And I tried to talk to the admiral. I tried to talk to the officer. I tried to, I tried to tell the story, but I, no one would fucking believe me. It was shocking to me. So I retired, and the, it, my concerns manifested into nightmares because I was thinking to myself, Kevin, what if what happened to us off the coast of San Diego happened off the coast of Iran? Mm. When I really did have missiles on board, I could start a war. Hello and welcome to the Phenomenon Report. I'm Kelly Kleinman. Today we have with us Senior Chief Kevin Day, retired U.S. Navy, who served aboard the USS Princeton CG-59, which is a Ticonderoga-class guided missile cruiser, serving the United States Navy, of course. Armed with guns, anti-air, anti-service, and anti-submarine missiles, plus other goodies, she's also equipped for surface-to-air, surface-to-surface, and anti-submarine warfare. Basically, you don't try and piss her off. On November 10th, 2004, <laughs> a day like no other, it was twilight, ironically. What a perfect evening. It was to take a boat ride into a very real twilight zone. I've got with us Mr. Kevin Day. Kevin, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your service. Aloha, and thank you. Glad to be here with you guys. So how many years did you serve in the Navy? Give us a breakdown. I served uh, almost 22 years. Um, joined in 1986. Um, low, low time for all the wars to break out, so... I pretty much served my whole career either uh, preparing to go overseas or actually being overseas. Ended up making, um, if we count the, uh, some smaller deployments, I made about eight different deployments during my career. Mm -hmm. And uh, mostly all, uh, all, all in the, to the West, Western Pacific. I never went to Europe at all. And of course, all in the IO and the uh, Arabian Gulf area. Mm -hmm. My, my job forte on the, uh, on the ship, I was operations specialist. And we're basically the, the people that man the radars in uh, combat information center. And we're the guys that actually um, take the ship to war. If, you know, if we ever have to, we shoot the guns and missiles and track all the aircraft and the submarines and the ships and keep track of the intelligence and that kind of stuff. Well, we're, we're, <laughs> gonna, we're gonna join uh, Sherman and Mr. Peabody and we're all gonna dive into the Wayback Machine together. It's November 10th, 2004, a day like many others uh, aboard the USS Princeton. What were you doing that day? We know what your role was on the ship. How did it start off for you? Um, on November, uh, prior to that, there was a few days prior, I was sitting in a position called Anti-Air Warfare Coordinator, which is pretty much the guy on the ship or the gal on the ship that's actually going to punch the button to launch the missile if you ever had to. Um, basically in charge of... Uh, discerning and fighting the air war for the ship. And I started to notice this really strange tracks off. We were down about probably 80 miles southwest of San Diego that day. And I started to notice this um, really strange group of tracks at my Catalina Island, which was about, I don't know, maybe 120 miles north of us or so. And if I remember correctly, that first group I saw, I believe there was uh, about five contacts. And the reason why I say they were weird is because they were at 28,000 feet going a hundred knots in a, in a, in a formation. And they were tracking south towards Mexico real slow. And that's really weird. Um, I've been tracking aircraft my whole career. And uh, I had never seen anything fly that high going that slow before, especially in a formation. Um, and so I'm thinking to myself, okay, this, I'm not concerned from an air defense perspective. It's probably something Elon Musk or something totally unrelated to what I'm doing. They don't even know I'm down here. But I, we continued to track and report them and just keep an eye on them. Um, and there were several groups before uh, November 10th rolled around, and 
on that day, I was going to do a major air defense exercise. We call it an ADEX. And I was going to put a whole bunch of good guy, uh, notional good guy, notional bad guy aircraft in that same piece of sky. And that's when I became concerned about these objects because I didn't want to run into them and create a, a, a mid-air collision of some kind. I had no idea what they were. So Captain Smith, he comes down to combat and I said, hey, sir, um, you know, we're getting ready to do the ADEX and I strongly recommend we intercept one of these air one of these objects and figure out what the hell it is. I don't, because if something happens, someone's going to ask you and me why we were so damn curious about him. And the captain looks at me and says, yep, you're right, Senior Chief, intercept one. And that turned out to be Commander Fravor's um, intercept, uh, now famous. And I sure I'm glad nothing bad happened that day, other than the shock and the hell out of this. Well, let's, let's. I mean, we were all scratching our heads. And at one, at one point, when he made his intercept, the object he intercepted, he, it went from 28,000 feet down to 50 feet above the water, stopped. He went chasing it, got in a little dogfight, and that thing took off in under two seconds, went 60 miles from where he was to his combat air patrol station, which is just a notional point in the sky where they kind of loiter and hang out until they get tasking. But how, how the hell did the object know where that point in the sky was? I mean, I'm talking right on it, too the exact Latin long and altitude and just stop there. Hmm. Stop. Now, you, now you mentioned, Kevin, you, we're going to get into that in a second. You mentioned 28,000 feet. Now I just want to explain to the, the people listening that that's well above a helicopter's operational capability. They can't operate at 28,000, 25,000 would be the max and they, they would be quite difficult actually for them to operate with any capability at 25,000 as well. So now you were in, you originally saw them off the coast of the Channel Islands, and then they, they started moving at, at, what, at what speed, and were they in international waters or were they still in um, U.S. territory? They, they kind of skirted international and uh, U.S. territory, being uh, 10, 10 miles plus off the coast. Mm -hmm. And they went from the Channel Islands and they, uh, at 100 knots, they dragged, and interesting enough, they all disappeared off my radar at the exact same point in the sky. Um, and I'm talking over the course of several days, there was probably a hundred objects and they all disappeared at the same. So I, you know, I wrote that lat latitude and longitude down in my logbook that it was interesting to me. It was actually right above Guadalupe Island off the coast of Baja, Mexico. And when Lou Alizondo came to my house, he was interviewing me like you are. And I, as soon as I mentioned that I had the Latin long written in my logbook, he's like, I'm going there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's how they ended up. That's how they ended up down there with Sean Cahill. They, they went there and they, they saw some stuff with their own eyes down there too, by the way. Well, how long? There's something you... out there. What, what, what it is, I have no idea. To this day, I have no idea what it is. How long were the exercise? I mean, I have ideas, but I don't have any. We'll, we'll get into that as well. Um, I'm just curious how long the exercises ran, and did you see these, were they also seen aboard the USS Nimitz while you were running these exercises, and how long did it all go? How long did this last? It, um, yeah, all, all the ships were out there, and a lot of the aircraft saw them, and um, we were out there, uh, we were in tracking these objects from the 10th of November to about the 16th of November, roughly. There was about 100 contacts in groups of 5 to 10 over that that course of the week, you know, the course of one week. And that was not just yourself. That was everybody tracking these, uh, these craft, correct? Yeah, we had, we had them all reported on the data links and everything. And interestingly enough, our data links get, um, 
piped over to shore uh, to shore installations as well. So there's people on land watching it too, watching the yeah. picture. Yeah. What's the protocol that you have to engage in when you pick up anomalous craft on your screen? Um, we have procedures. Every time I get a new contact, I have procedures to identify it, which was my entire job was to identify everything that flies. And we take a lot of things into consideration. And I'm going to leave this on an unclassified level. I mean, you can Google this and get the same information. Sure. I mean, flight profile is one. Is it on a Comair route? Is have a, a commercial airline profile? Um, we're looking at any electronic signals that are emanating from the object. Um, there's a guy on the ship, a gal on the ship. That entire job is to look at that. Um, <clears throat> we look at uh, intel. Okay, do we know of any things about the launch? Um, if so, is it is it matching the the signatures we're seeing, the techno signatures that we're seeing, and we have a process within Combat Information Center where, if I get a new track, say new track four four two five, everyone in combat automatically there does their little piece of the job, and I put all this information together and make the identification. Mm. In this case, I was utterly unable to identify these things because they did not have any electronic signatures. They were not on any commercial air routes. They were not on any type of known flight profiles that I'd ever seen before. They were flying in formation. And we, we originally thought, hey, this must be some type of system error, maybe, because we just had a new, uh, you know, new technology upgrade. So at one point, we actually brought down our entire systems, ran every diagnostic test we had, brought everything back up, mm -hmm. and the contacts were even stronger now. Yeah. So. I'm absolutely convinced, especially since the pilot saw them with their own eyes, these were definitely real objects about it. That, that's one thing I am positive about. They, mm -hmm. they were definitely real objects. Well, when did, when, I'm sorry, you, you, you cut off there for a second. Let me ask you a question. When, for the lack of a better thought, when did you decide to get up and, and, and take a look and uh, was the interceptor that you sent up there armed? And how many did you send up? We, we were getting ready to run a major air defense exercise. In fact, the aircraft had, had already started to launch off the USS Nimitz. And I told the captain, I said, hey, sir, um, up to right now, I wasn't that concerned about these objects, but now I am. Because I want to I wanna, I wanna play in the same airspace, and I got unknown objects in it, and I under one of these things. Because someone's going to ask you and I, why the hell? Why are we curious about it? I recommend that's how I have to be loaded either on the on the airplanes or the ships. That was a totally exercise environment. Um, we took control of Commander Fravor's flight. He was the first one to launch a fast eagle flight. He was a commanding officer of uh, VFA one forty one Black Ace. And I said, Hey, um, you know, I gave him a knock We had a real asking for him. I gave him a vector and drove him to the spot. It was a pretty standard exercise. I had the external comp on the pretty standard voice comps between the ship, my, my air controller, and the, and the in the flight. Until he got to the merge plot position, which is basically the same vertical piece of sky. And on my two-dimensional display, it looks like one object dog they've merged. And as soon as he got there, he's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm engaged, I'm engaged, on the radio. And it, it freaking shocked us all. We weren't expecting that in any way, shape, or form. And all of a sudden, I swear to God, that object that he had intercepted at 28,000 feet dropped from 28,000 feet down to the surface of the water in less than a second. 
I found out later the next day of doing an after action report, it was 0.78 seconds. That's like 1,350 Gs. Yeah, yeah. Body can withstand about nine. And, the air, you know, a normal aircraft can stand maybe 14, 15. This is many times more than that. This thing was smoking. There should have been there should have been huge sonic booms, but there, it was totally quiet. No sonic booms. Do you do you think that display of maneuverability was nothing more than a benign display of technological superiority? I think it was a form of communication. Yeah, and it was highly effective because because that happened. You and I are talking about this right now. Yeah. Well, you know. That might I mean, give us some. It was under, they delivered an unmistakable message. Yeah, an unconventional engagement with an unconventional message. Well, that might give us some insight into a possible into a possible non-engagement protocol that they might have. Um, essentially, they were like a almost like you know how a monkey shakes a bush to show I'm stronger than you. Stay away. Um, purely a demonstration yeah. of capability as yeah. to not mess with them. Now, yeah, and to also let us know that they're real. Yeah. I mean, we had sensors out there. We had a combination of sensors and uh, trained observers out there. And uh, I haven't met anybody that's claimed what we saw wasn't real, anyone with any credibility. I mean, it's unmistakable. We got it recorded on radar. We got it recorded on voice communications. We got eyewitness reports from pilots. We've got trained radar operators. Um, trained electronic signal operators. Um, unless we're all delusional or, or all a bunch of freaking liars, and trust me, this really happened and those objects were really real. Can you track what them? What they were, the I, I want to know. I want to find out. I want to know what they were. Yeah. I still well, want to make the ID. Can, can you track them in the water as well? Um, that wasn't my job, but yes, um, we do have ability to track things under the water yes on ships and of course the submarine that was with us we had the uss louisville with us but i have to tell you when this was all happening it was never my personal situational awareness that these objects ever went into the water i only found out about that later mm -hmm. I, 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 the pilots reported something in the water but the object that commander Graber uh, intercepted and lieutenant underwood after him he, he's the one that got the tic-tac video um they say there was something in the water but these these tic tac objects never went themselves never went into the water they stayed about 50 feet above the water mm. and that's what i observed on radar as well what was the debriefing like i'm sure you had to talk to uh sit around a big old table and and give your analysis yeah we, we i was frustrated from the beginning that there was really no interest in this so it was really weird and even the captain had like a a really strange reaction to it. I said, at one point, I said, hey, Captain Smith, uh, sir, what do you think these things are? And he said, he looked at me with a very serious look in his face. He said, I don't know, uh, spontaneously forming ice from outer space. And I have to, I was so shocked. I actually laughed in his face. And I went, oh, I'm sorry, sir. I thought he was going to get mad at me. But he let it go. And because uh, I, I, he didn't know either. He had 28, 28 years of sea time. When I asked him that question, and he had never seen anything like this either. Yeah. We were completely baffled. Well, you know, Kevin, we have DS, well, you know, you know, I'm giving you information you already know, but this is for the benefit of our listeners. But we have DSPs, tracking craft, in and out of our atmosphere all the time. Those are deep space platforms. And, you know, I'm yeah. sure you wouldn't be surprised to learn that 
you know, your group may have been there, uh, sent there by those in command with full knowledge that something actually was going on. They just wanted you to take a look and maybe provoke a countermeasure so they could determine intent and intel on what these craft exhibit when engaged. Because literally, I'll tell you this, about 20 or 25 years ago, um, we received some information that there were roughly 2,500 objects that were being tracked entering Earth's atmosphere every month. This is on average, and 2,500 leaving. So there's a lot of activity out there. Now, my thought would be, all right, well, we're sending a fairly powerful flotilla out in that area. Let's see what we could do to provoke uh, a benign engagement and measure their, their, um, their countermeasures. What's your thought on that? Um, two things. Um, this, whenever we do anything in the Navy, like we're going to do a major underway involving lots of ships and aircraft, these, these, they're usually planned months in advance. So if your point's right, we were, if being the case we were sent out to specifically to observe those, that object, they would have had to know what was going to happen months in advance. And what was your second part of the question? Well, then, I mean, what, what was the possibility that that might have happened? Do you believe that that was, a, a, that was the likelihood that they actually did know? Certainly, they didn't stop you. They, had, they were watching as well as you were. They didn't stop you from engaging because they had several days they could have done that. But they just kept you plugged yeah, in. Yeah, as a matter of fact, we, on our Spy 1 radar, we observed these things um, uh, descending from low, low, earth, low earth orbit. And they first went to about 80,000 feet and they stopped and then they dropped from 80,000 feet down to 28,000 feet and stopped and started tracking south. Right. So they're being picked up by they're, they're being tracked by with 80,000 with the 28,000 and started tracking south <laughs> at 100 knots, <laughs> which is what? Yeah. Why that flow? <laughs> right. And, and then literally dropping to 50 feet above the water level is at that speed. It was unbelievable from 28,000. Uh, feet. It's unbelievable. It's it's just unbelievable. Now, you actually made visual contact at one point? Yeah, um, after Commander Fravor's intercept happened, I, I said to myself, hey, I want to see these eyeballs. So I was back up on watch the next day, and there was another uh, group out there, so I, I picked the closest one on the radar. I got the relative bearing and range and altitude, and I ran up real quick up to the bridge wing and I got on the big eye binoculars and I found that thing in the sky. That's one of my skill sets as an operations specialist, being able to correlate radar information with the visual. So I'm, I'm absolutely positive what I saw on radar was what I was looking at. And I, but I have to be honest with you, when I, when I saw my object, it was a boring white light in the sky and didn't do anything at all. I stood there for like 10 minutes. I got, bore, I got bored with it and uh, disappointed and I went back down to combat. But a lot of the other bridge watchstanders over the course of that week, they were, they did essentially did the same thing I did. And they did see these things when they were through the big eyes with their own eyeballs. How far would you say it was when you saw it? It was about 30 miles, roughly. So basically, it could have been on top of the USS Princeton in about a, a second and a quarter, based on speeds that you're mentioning, you're suggesting. E easily. A second and a quarter. Yeah, easily. <laughs> well. So, how did the video engagement be? How was that made public? Who leaked that? You know, this is another interesting part of the story. Um, that I don't know about the Go Fast and the Gimbal videos because that happened in 2015, I believe, on the East Coast. Yeah. But the Tic Tac video, that little short grainy, 
piece of grain we all see now. Yeah. Um, I actually had that exact same video snippet in my e my my secret email the very next morning after this happened. Mm. That's why when this story broke in 2017, in December 2017, I was had actually reopened the golf course uh, kitchen. I was carrying out a plate of fish and chips because I hadn't hired a waiter a waiter yet. And all of a sudden I'm like, who, wait, who turned off my golf? And then I saw what was playing. It was a CNN story. And that video from 2004 was playing. I was so in shock, man. I, <laughs> I was immediately overcome with emotion. I dropped the plate. And I said, Dave, I'll be, I'll be back. I got, I got to go home. I'll explain later. It, it profoundly impacted me, man. Yeah, I can imagine. It's good news, though, that this information. Well, I knew, I knew, I, well, I knew, I instantly knew that my life was going to change again. Yeah. Because I, I had to speak up because I was that man's, I was Commander Fravor's third wingman. I was the guy controlling his flight when it happened. I had no choice. I had to, I had to come up. Have you been, have you been harassed in any way after you came forward or is the genie pretty much out of the bottle now with the Department of Defense admitting that we don't know what that was and it represents intelligent technology from unknown origin? Other than an anomalous visit um, by two gentlemen that I didn't know it at the time that they came um, because of the Tic Tac thing, they, I think they knew the story was about to break. Um, they kind of pushed me and guided me in the right way, as it turns out, because I ended up doing the right things. Mm -hmm. um, I've never been harassed by anyone, quite the opposite. In fact, I'd, I've been embraced by the communities and um, even by skeptics, you know, that even the skeptics believe my story. Yeah. And, you know, and the reason is I've never claimed to know what these things are. I don't know. <laughs> I, I know what happened and I know they were real, but I don't know what they were. In fact, I want to find out. Uh, we started a nonprofit company called UAP Expeditions. I've got some scientists and some physicists on the team. Uh, we've got some of the trained observers from the 2004 incident. We're going to charter a research vessel, go out the coast of California. We're taking a bunch of high-tech gear with us. We're going to go back in November, December timeframe when this thing happened. And we're going to try to re-observe, refine, re-observe, and record in lots of different data modalities these objects. And then turn all that data over to the scientific coalition for ufology and other think tanks and let someone else tell us what they are we're just going to record it and give it to them and they can tell us what they are that's our plan well you know there are several theories one of them is that some of the objects that we see are living creatures hard to believe but consciousness takes many forms in the universe because the universe is so big that's the amazing thing that's hey and by the and by the way, that's my own private belief of what we encountered. They were some form of living creature because of their behavior. Yeah. I think maybe they're a combination of bi biological and hardware. I don't know. Yeah. But at least their intelligence, whether artificial or not, their intelligence was biological. Yeah. It's the only way I can describe it. They, they, act, they behave like a flock of birds. Uh, like a flock exactly of like birds. a flock of birds. And also, it struck me almost dolphin-like, because I remember reading the account from the gentleman, the, the pilot who intercepted the craft, that it sort of did a belly roll past him. It was almost like, well, now we have complete control. We can fly with impunity 
in the skies at our will. We can do anything we want up here, much like a dolphin can underwater. It really makes you wonder if these things are 100% technological or a certain degree of them are actually living, um, living creatures or entities of consciousness, which is amazing to me. Actually, it's the most interesting aspect of it. Sentient. Yeah. And you know, I don't, I don't have any evidence besides my observations, but that's my personal belief as well. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Well, let's talk about your Sailor's Anthology and break it down for us. Where can we get it? Where can folks get a copy? Is it being self-published? Uh, what's the deal with that? And then uh, what websites would you like to send us to so we could learn more about what you got going on? Uh, both my books, I uh, ended up writing two books of short stories. Um, just to call that, kind of go along with the series, I had something to publish. Sailor's Anthology, book one and two, and they are, they are both available on Amazon. Uh, Sailor's Anthology. We'll go ahead and uh, put a link up to that as well. Um, and Kevin, I, I want to thank you again for relating the story, a very hair-raising one. I think there's a lot of people who would wish they were in your shoes, actually, and I would look at it more as a blessing that you were able to see something like this because so few people can. It's like seeing a Bigfoot or or some cryptid, you know, or or seeing a seeing a UFO, which is exactly what you did. It's it's a special. Uh, it's a special event that only some people get to experience. I certainly would like to. I think I'm at the point now in my life where I could probably handle that mentally and emotionally and, and spiritually and, and psychologically. <laughs> Being a little redundant there, but nonetheless, it's an awesome experience. I think you should look at it like that. And, and you know, I really you. appreciate you coming forth, Kev. Yeah, thank you, because I, I totally concur. I, I'm extremely blessed. Yeah. What a great yeah, I really am. And I, I wouldn't trade this. Now that I understand what happened to me and stuff, I mean, there were some years there where um, it could have went the other way for me and I was so profoundly impacted and I didn't understand the reason why I was changing. But now that um, the reasons are more clear to me, it's become a lot easier to deal with it. And um, I'm, glad I'm, I'm glad I'm the one that's, um, I don't want to say chosen because I've I don't feel that way about it. It's just, um, I just was a guy in the right place at the right time. You Hopefully I'm doing the right things now to make this story come out. Well, you, That's my goal. I, I want to prove that these things are real to the world. And that's pretty much where I stop. That my job will be done at that point. Over to someone else's tell us what they are. Well, you're at the, uh, you're at the front of the uh, new Star Trek generation because, or I should say Star Trek era, because, this is the first time in man's history where we can measure extraterrestrial activity or technology that we, we never could understand before or apply to or a definition to. We're, we're at the very beginning of it. And I think some of us, it's great to be there. We have some incredible technology we're taking. I'll, give, I'll just give you one example. We have sure. a pair of night vision goggles that can, like, let's say I'm looking at a commercial airliner. It'll take that image and turn it into an analog file, a, a sound file. Um, and then you can take the sound file and then turn it back into images. So we're hoping to be able to use that, assuming that we can find these things, we're hoping to be able to talk to these things. Oh. For example, we send up the image of a whale that sends us back a whale song or versa visa. Mm. Or we, we send the first uh, four numbers of Fibonacci sequence. And it sends back the next four numbers of the Fibonacci sequence. Some, something that's irrefutable. Uh, first contact handshake. That's, that's 
that is that would be the highest goal of our mission yeah well yeah, i'll tell you I, I think there's been a lot more than first contact i think there's been multiple contacts probably into the tens of thousands of people have had the contact you know initially that's what ufology is about the study of those contacts but kev thank you again thanks so much for joining us thank you and uh folks this is Kelly. I'm honored and What's my it? honor and pleasure brother. yeah the show is Phenomenon Report. I'm Kelly Klein, and that was Senior Chief Kevin Day, retired U.S. Navy, who served aboard the USS Princeton CG-59. Kevin, thanks again, and thanks for joining us Thank on you. this episode of Phenomenon Report. Stay tuned for our next guest. Hello, and welcome to the second half of our show today. Here we've got Mr. Brian Sale. He was a Michigan lad. He was a Spartan at one point. And he had a couple interesting experiences looking up in the skies. And Brian, I want to uh, say thank you so much for joining us and relating your story to us. And I'm going to have you start from the beginning. The first one, the first one, you actually had two of them. Go through the first one. Let's get through the second one. And let's just amaze people because it was a very interesting, both of them were very interesting engagements. Okay. The first one, I'm assuming you're talking about uh, the encounter I had in uh, Colorado. Yeah. I was backpacking. Okay, that was uh, that was back early 70s. I want to say about 1970, 71. Uh, we were backpacking, a bunch of us, about 10 guys. And uh, at the time, it was, uh, it was late in the evening. I can't tell you exactly what time it was. And we're going through a canyon. And one of the guys just happened to look up. And he said, well, what, what, what's that? What's that? We, so, of course, we all looked up. And uh, now we're in a canyon, so we didn't have the entire sky, you know, to, from our vantage point. But what we saw was a white orb. Uh, I would call it a sphere. I guess orb is now the nomenclature, what they call these things. But it looked like a sphere. Um, it was a sphere, and it was about the size of a full moon. And it was about as bright as a full moon. Um, the light that it was emitting was actually, it seemed like it was coming from inside the sphere. It had no exterior lights, no, nothing like navigation lights or anything like that. And uh, it just passed over. I couldn't tell you how high it was. It's hard to, to gauge exactly the height, but it went over one uh, ridge line. Uh, when the guy called it out, it was probably, oh, maybe about halfway from one ridge line to the other. Mm -hmm. uh, made absolutely no noise and just passed in a straight line, exact straight line, didn't move at all. I mean, just very, um, very straight, uh, didn't speed up, didn't slow down. And just, we just observed it. It was really only about 30 seconds before it disappeared over the other ridgeline. Did it, did it illuminate the ridgeline at all? No, it was, no. I mean, it didn't emit any light. Uh, it looked like, the, like I said, the light was coming from inside the sphere. Mm -hmm. It had nothing that we could tell that was actually like a navigation light or anything like that. I mean, it had nothing on the outside. It almost looked like a full moon or a basketball, if you can imagine that. Uh, completely white, no markings that we could tell, and just going, uh, like I say, going from one ridge line over to the next, no sound, no nothing. If this guy hadn't looked up at that particular point in time, we would have missed it. Absolute silence. Was there, did you take note of the environment since you were out in the wilderness? Well, we were out, we were out in the boondocks. I mean, we were talking, yeah. I don't know, if that's early 70s in the Arapaho National Forest in mm -hmm. uh, Colorado. So we were literally miles from any town, uh, probably about, I would say maybe 50 to 75 miles outside of Denver. Uh, we were headed up to the uh, Wyoming border. 
So we're really, we're literally in the wilderness. We were in the middle of nowhere. Was it absolute silence? It was absolute silence. It was pitch black. Uh, actually, we we're getting ready to, uh, to hunker down for the evening. And any idea at all how fast it was moving? Just a, an estimate? Because it, I couldn't really gauge how high it was, it's kind of hard to tell how fast it was moving. I mean, if it was right above the bridge line, I would say maybe going uh, 40, 50 miles an hour. It could have been much higher than that. I, there's no way to tell. Yeah, because a lot of people are seeing orbs that seems to be a very, very common. Well, I, don't, I won't say any of this is common, but it seems to be more common because we have social media. So we learn about these things and out in the woods. And some of these orbs are as small as your fist. Mm -hmm. So it's really an interesting phenomenon. And there's some of us who are pushing forth the theory that some of these things are just alive. These are not necessarily extraterrestrial craft or technology, but some of these are actually living organisms that exist photoluminescent in the atmosphere, which is interesting. It's, a, it's just another theory. Now you had a second one and uh, you were in college, you were uh, at Michigan State. Uh, if you were gonna say something about the University of Michigan, I was gonna have to joke with you because I, I did go to Ohio State. Uh, just like, <laughs> Big Ten's Big Ten. We're all pulling for each other to, to you know, yeah. get, get that uh, ball kicked off this year. I don't think it's gonna happen, obviously. But why don't you go back and give us a little bit of uh, um, a recanting on what happened to you in Michigan back in the day. That would be the late 70s, 78? Yeah, that was late 70s. I remember 78, 79. I can remember I was sophomore or junior. Uh, I graduated in 80, and it was before that. And my roommate and I were coming back. Uh, I think we went to a movie or something. It was late at night. Uh, walking back to the dorm, and uh, just before entering the dorm, we stopped. We looked up at the sky. It was a moonless night. There were no clouds. Uh, where Michigan State is, I mean, it's it's a town, but you wouldn't call it, you know a lot of light pollution. Uh, where we were staying, we were living in Butterfield Hall, which is part of the Brody complex, and it's kind of on the far west side of the uh, of the campus. And as you're looking east, it's kind of like not necessarily an open field, but you have a pretty clear view of, uh, of uh, the trees and, and the buildings, but nothing really blocking your view per se. Uh, we stood there in front of the building. We were just kind of awestruck looking at the stars and yeah, probably on, what do you see on a clear night, 2000 stars. So like I said, I mean, it was beautiful, clear night. And then we're, we're both looking at the same patch of sky and my eye caught something. It, the pinpoint of light. And we just happened to be looking up there. We probably would have missed it. Um, it looked like a star, but it was moving. Um, astronomy is one of my hobbies. So I know you see satellites from, from time to time. And first thing that came to my mind was a satellite. Mm -hmm. I was watching. I was about to tell you, hey, Pete, do you see the satellite that I'm looking at? And before I could say anything, it made a, a right angle, a 90 degree turn. Of course, I just stood there and looked at it, and at, at that point, I didn't say anything to my roommate, and I was kind of like an awestruck, and then it did another 90-degree turn, and then another one, and it would travel for about three or four seconds and make another 90-degree turn, and they were all 90-degree turns. I mean, it wasn't zigzagging, as you would think, you know, mm -hmm. an angle. It was at, at a sharp 90-degree turn, never slowed down, never stopped. At some point, it was actually backtracking, but it was generally going in a... Uh, it would be uh, west to east, and then we watched it for uh, probably I would say maybe five minutes. I finally I told Pete, "Hey, you seen what I'm seeing?" And he looked at it, goes, "Yeah, what the hell is that?" I said, "I have no idea." And we looked; there was nobody else around. There was probably I don't know 
probably 11 o'clock, maybe around midnight. And uh, we're just standing, the two of us, you know, just before we were in front of the building. And we're watching this thing, you know, our jaw drop and watch it zigzag. And like I said, it went uh, below the tree line after about five minutes, it disappeared back there. And then uh, we went into the to our dorm room and uh, I was eager to talk about it. I'm like, well, what was that? You think we should call the cops? What do you think they're going to call us crazy? And uh, he kind of froze. He's like, I don't want to talk about it. And uh, what do you talk about? I mean, it's just, I don't know. Talk about it. To this still and still doesn't talk about it. I haven't brought it up. He has never brought it up, and I have brought it up. But he's a, he's a very religious individual. As a matter of fact, he went on to become a Methodist minister. Hmm. So, and uh, yeah, he's got a church over there in South, uh, South Michigan. But yeah, to this day, I have no idea what it is. Now, the, the sphere that I talked about earlier, maybe that I might have some kind of explan early, or earthly explanation. This thing, I have no clue. As far as I know, there was nothing in that day, nothing in this day man-made that make, can make those kinds of turns. Uh, as far as how high it was, no idea. Look, just like a pinpoint against drop stars. Yeah. Well, you know, in 1978, in the tri-state area, I think the tri-state is, uh, it's like Indiana, Illinois, and um, help me out here. It wouldn't be Michigan. Well, I'm originally from New York, so when you talk about tri-state, you're talking uh, New right. York. Yeah. Hudson <laughs> Valley, New York. Yeah. Well, in that area, and well, maybe that, actually in well you know what there there 78 was a ufo flap it was actually not uncommon to have reports of ufos in that area specifically in, in michigan also in ohio as well I, of course you go to michigan state and myself go to ohio state now your friend won't talk about it to this day do you think that it has shaken his belief in 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 christianity or do you think it's something he just doesn't want to approach for whatever well, reason. At, at first I thought maybe it was just too much for him to absorb, you know, and yeah. uh, to deal with. And then, but knowing how religious he is, I thought maybe, you know, it's obviously it, uh, it interferes with his beliefs. So and you that's what I'm assuming. I didn't want to pry, you know, the guy said he didn't want to talk about it. So I respected that. Sure. It's probably a little frightening for some people as well. You know, when you think that it shakes their paradigm the way it does. I had Calvin Parker on who, I want to say was, yeah, it was five years previous to your sighting, was abducted, allegedly abducted in Pascagoula, Mississippi while fishing with a friend. And they both got abducted. And it's been proven, uh, you may even have heard of it because it was a famous case, the Pascagoula abduction. Yeah, I've, I've heard about it and I've seen about it on TV. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah Calvin is a very religious fellow. He it did not shake his belief in Christianity. He said God created the universe. And there's an awful lot of planets out there and he put a lot of, you know, people out there. And for us to think that, I'm paraphrasing, that, you know, we're the only ones out here is, is ludicrous. I, I don't think Calvin uses words like ludicrous, but, um, but he, that, that's what he shared with me. And it's, it's interesting. I had a neighbor who was dating a young lady. They went out to uh, Zuma Beach here in, in Southern California. It's, a, it's in Malibu, basically. And she, again, being a devout Christian was sitting on the beach with him and they saw a light going back and forth over way over in the distance, pretty much at the horizon over the ocean. And he thought it was just a buoy or a boat getting, you know, toggled to and fro busy, you know, in a very uh, um, rough sea. 
But what happened next was pretty shocking. So the light that he saw moving back and forth, toggling back and forth on a rough sea, suddenly ended up overhead, directly over the beach. It was glowing red. There were lights revolving underneath it. And evidently, there were a lot of other people on the beach as well, because they all looked up and started clapping. And it stopped traffic on PCH. And then it shot off into the sky. He said at such speed that you, your eye couldn't even track it. He said three minutes later, three F-16s came zo zooming by from a point who named uh, Point Wainimi, uh Naval Air Force Base, which is interesting, right? So he said yeah. they had no chance of catching this craft because it would have been on the dark side of the moon by the time they came anywhere near it. So fascinating stuff, actually. So. What's your belief on UFOs? What do you do? You think that they're alien oriented? Do you think that it's something? Oh, that there's no doubt in my mind. I mean, actually, before I saw those those two incidents, uh, well, the first one I was very young, but uh, once I was in college, I I've always thought there was life outside of um, you know this uh, this solar system, this galaxy. I mean, I think uh, we have a hard time coming to terms with that because we think in humanity maybe it's human nature that you know if we can't travel from star to star nobody can and that's just not the case i mean not in my mind at least yeah uh, it's very possible that uh, you know as far as technological intellectually maybe we're as far as we're going to get um if we were to arrive at some planet occupied by chimpanzees I mean, chimpanzees are pretty smart, but I don't think you're going to have a chimpanzee going to come up with the theory of relativity, so to speak. Sure. Um, and we might be, you know, chimpanzees to some other, you know, I don't want to say superior intelligence, but uh, yeah, somebody that's far ahead of us. So I'm, I'm sure the list is pretty deep, and I'm sure that we're probably nowhere near the top of it at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, so I've always, you know, uh, Robert Bigelow, you know, he has this... Uh, plant over here is um uh, he says they're walking amongst us maybe they are i don't know <laughs> well you know, if they're taking look at they're taking us people are absolutely being abducted when the dod comes out and says these represent a technology we don't know anything about we can't really determine where they're from then they're they're and they're operating with impunity and they're taking samples and tracking those samples and checking in on those samples from time to time, they are here. And a lot of abductees claim that, that they see human looking people on those craft. So it could be, it could very well be. And I think the truth would probably blow our minds. It would blow our minds. And I'm ready to have my mind blown. But listen, I wanna thank you so much for joining us. Uh, of course, you know, Brian here is on the same Facebook page uh, that I am, the same group, which is Flying Saucer Sightings, or no, UFO Sightings. UFO Sightings. You can't talk about aliens and you can't talk about anything else. <laughs> and, or he'll, he'll, he'll cut you out of that uh, group uh, in a heartbeat. Um, but, uh, but thanks again. I appreciate uh, your, your joining us today, Brian. And folks, I hope you enjoyed our show today. I want you to share. I want you to like. And I want you to comment. But most of all, I really need you to, to subscribe to the show, to subscribe to the Phenomenon Report. And until we meet again, the next show is coming right up. Stay safe and keep your eyes to the skies. Cheers. Thanks for having me.